Good afternoon, everyone. We're going to get started. Welcome to Sound Bites. I think I know most of you in the room, but if I haven't met you, I'm Margot Stedman. I'm the Education and Community Engagement Director here for the Symphony. This week we have with us our music director finalist, Vlad Vizorano. Did I pronounce that correctly? Excellent. Thank you. And of course, you all know Mark, one of our favorites, principal trumpet. So I'm not going to, I don't have much more to say other than I'm happy that you're here and you guys are in for a killer concert tomorrow night. Rehearsals, I've been enjoying them. So I think everyone has and you're going to have a lot of fun. So without further ado, I'm going to turn it over to Mark. Yeah, you all know me by now. (laughs) Causing conductors Malak's addictions for the last, I don't know how many years. Uh, Fortunately, she said your name, so I don't have to try to maul it. But, you know, and then there is one. And this is our final candidate. So, as always, my question to start off with is what's your story? Where'd you come from? Where did it all start? I actually have a quick question before I get into that. How did the temperature drop 40 degrees from yesterday? That's because this That's is what Illinois. I'd like to know. I was wearing this exact same shirt. I had lunch at Octane. I walked home. I felt great. I felt actually warm. I wake up this morning. Hey, why not put on the same shirt? It's a nice, it's a nice sunny day. And well, I did not walk comfortably to my car. Let's, let's say that. <laughs> welcome to Illinois. So welcome back to the Midwest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, my story. I was born in a log cabin in 1809 in Springfield, <laughs> Illinois. No, so yeah. So my story is. Um, I was born in uh, uh, Constanza, Romania, uh, 1985, just before the, just before the, uh, the, hello, yeah, just before the revolution over there, and um, I moved to the States when I was very young, I was about four and a half years old, this was 32, oh gosh, 32 years ago at this point, in 1990. And uh, my career, I always like to say my career was somewhat of a zigzag. So I started uh, piano performance. I started, but late. You know, like, like with piano, if you want, or in general with all careers in music, if you want to have a career in uh, performance of an instrument, you need to be starting maybe when you're three or four years old. That's just, yeah. you need that time. You need all those years by the time you get to your teens to really, really perfect your, your technique, to have the instrument under your belt. And, well, 10 years old, is that was not going to happen. I, I, I was good enough, though, to get into an undergraduate program in piano performance. And I went to uh, UCLA. And from there began the zigzag, essentially. Mm-hmm. From there, I decided, uh, yeah, okay, piano performance, it's going to be a part of my life. I'm always going to play piano, but it's not going to be my career. And from there, I switched to music, uh, music history. And I started a master's at UT Austin in, of all things, believe it or not, medieval musicology. I was, yeah. Now, there is an in-demand career there right is, yeah, there. I was, yeah. I, mm. was go- I was going for the big bucks, yeah. as you can mm-hmm. tell. <laughs> you know, and I was studying things like Gregorian chant and uh, Guillaume de Machaut, if you know this uh, French composer, um, uh, medieval French, French composer. And, uh, you know, I, I always loved the origin stories of things. Where did music come from? I loved ancient Greek music, ancient Babylonian music, like going back into the origin of scales, intervals, all that stuff. 
You know, but again, there was something missing. It was it was an interest. It was a deep interest, but it wasn't a passion per se. It wasn't something where I had a clear instinct for it. And uh, I was very, very lucky. Uh, while at Austin, I had a, a musicology professor, that professor. I think everyone knows what that means, mm-hmm. that professor, who, um, who, saw, who saw conducting in me for some reason. Mm-hmm. And he was the one that said, you know what, Vlad, I think, I think you should try this. Just do me a favor. Try this out. See what you think. I think it's something that's in your blood. And man, oh, man, was he right. <laughs> you know, so he, uh, yeah, he gave me, uh, my, actually, my, my very first private lesson was with, uh, with him at the piano. Mm-hmm. And then he got me private lessons with the uh, music director of the Austin Symphony, Peter Bain. Okay. And from there, like all young uh, want-to-be conductors, let's say, you know, because you don't start in conducting. You always start with an instrument. I don't know anyone who ever starts conducting first. But if you want to get into a conducting program, you have to make tapes. Yep. You know, the people who are going to bring you in have to see you conduct. Whatever you can do for whatever level you can have at that point. And what are you going to do? You're a young student, a master's student, and you have to make tapes in something where you've had maybe three or four private, uh, private lessons up until this point. So in comes the student's currency, which is beer and pizza. If and a musician's currency is musician, not yeah. a student's currency. Well, I don't know. I don't know about that one. It works with me. Yeah. So the musician's currency, as you, as you, as you nicely put, I got some uh, friends together. I said, okay, I'm, I need to record some repertoire. Let's have two rehearsals and a performance, which is going to be recorded live. And uh, in, in return, all the beer and pizza you can eat and drink. And had some great players at UT. They were very kind. They uh, were very patient with me while I hacked my way through whatever I was trying to do at that point. But um, it, was, it was good enough to get me into uh, the master's program at uh, Indiana, uh, at Bloomington. It's a great school, excellent school. And the very first time I was in front of a full orchestra in my life as a conductor was at the audition for Indiana. So you can imagine the sweat beads at that point. But uh, I got in. I got in. It was one of the greatest successes, I think, up, you know, up to that point in my life, and um, very difficult. Mm-hmm. <laughs> very, very well. It's you know, like I said, you you start conducting essentially at that age, right. and, mm-hmm. and with those orchestras at, at the uh, at the masters level. So these people have been playing since they were three and four years old. They are pursuing a career in piano performance, violin performance, voice, whatever, and they've been playing since they were three. And here I am, just <laughs> poor Vlad, trying to figure out how this all works at this point. And uh, they were all incredibly kind. I had great, uh, great teachers, a great faculty in general, an incredible opera mm-hmm. program over there. And, uh, you know, little by little, time, time by time, you go up there, you look like an idiot a lot. But slowly you start to piece things together. Slowly you start to figure out this is the way that that's done. This is how you speak to... Trumpet players versus mm-hmm. string players versus voice versus mm-hmm. so on. We like we like single syllable words in the trumpet section. Yeah, you, you <laughs> just like loud. Keep, keep it, yeah, exactly. <laughs> just loud, please. exactly, exactly. Yeah, and uh, yeah, and from there, I um, I went to a doctorate. I went uh, mm-hmm. did my doctorate in orchestral conducting at uh, Arizona State. Very different weather system, <laughs> and uh, things just kind of moved. Mm-hmm. At that point, I was uh, I got second place in an international conducting competition in in Spain, uh, mm-hmm. Caracas, 
And, I, and uh, I made the finals of another competition in London with the London Symphony Orchestra, where mm-hmm. I got to conduct them. Mm-hmm. And uh, things just kind of moved on from there. I, I started to guest conduct. I got opportunities to guest conduct around the world and uh, do the big, the big pieces, the Verdi Requiems, the Beethoven Nines, the... And yes, I look like an idiot at the beginning, just like always, because that's the way you have to start. But slowly and surely, you build it up, you build it up, and you have more, uh, more of a comfort zone. Well, you said something uh, interesting in the, when we were interviewing you earlier in the week, and kind of ties into your zigzag, yeah. uh, <laughs> is that your path through conducting is a little bit different from mm-hmm. most conductors who come up not maybe not necessarily through the competition ranks, but yeah. you know, associate at one place, assistant in yeah, another yeah, yeah. place, and that. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. So my path, um, I, um, my career kind of launched essentially through this uh, competition path, which is great because you get to guest conduct. Like I said, you get to go around the world and around the states, and you know, learn learn the big pieces, the big the big repertoire, like that one, <laughs> one of my favorite pieces. You know. <laughs> And, uh, you know, but, but what, what I essentially skipped or what I um, missed out on in that sense was I missed what, uh, the, the traditional conductor route in the States, which is you become an assistant conductor to an orchestra, a major orchestra, any orchestra, and you do education and pops and uh, family outreach concerts for, for the next two, two, three years. And if you're lucky, maybe you get to step into a guest conducting position. So it was it was a bit of a mixed bag. I got to do the big repertoire and I got to do the let's say the music director stuff a bit earlier, but I skipped out on the education stuff, the outreach. So I had to find other ways to kind of supplement that, other ways to improvise that in my career. And uh, I was again very very fortunate to have a really great hometown orchestra uh, from Thousand Oaks, California, where I'm from, called the New West Symphony. And they had a um, a beginning program or a, or a program for young students called the Harmony Project. And uh, very fortunate again, they gave me a call. Mm-hmm. So they just called me up. They they knew I was in town at the time. They said, you know, Vlad, we have this uh, program we'd like to start with these uh, uh, children from underserved areas of the county mm-hmm. who um, were putting instruments in their hands for the first times. And we'd like you to conduct. And there it was. I, uh, I started with the Beginner's Orchestra. We did challenging arrangements of Brahms II mm-hmm. and Pirates of the Caribbean and all kinds of awesome stuff. And we just had a great time. Mm-hmm. An awesome time. Now, yeah. did you uh, grow up, uh, were your parents musical? Was there music in the house, so to speak? Well, my parents, I'd say they're both actually very musical people. And mm-hmm. so is my sister. Mm-hmm. She's a doctor. She actually did go for the money, <laughs> you know. But uh, uh, both of my parents are, are electrical engineers. Ah, okay. But but my grandfather actually, he uh, he played he played the violin, mm-hmm. and he did it uh, like I like to say uh, Romanian style, where you don't you don't really learn to read music first; you learn the instrument first, right. mm-hmm. and then you learn to read music at a at a later time. Mm-hmm. And uh, how he actually learned to play was the, was the most interesting story. He was a prisoner of war in Siberia after the Second War. And he was there for 12 years. And that's where he learned to play the violin. There was, uh, there was a band, essentially, or you know, like they did in the, in the Jewish camps uh, in Germany. They had musicians who would 
play essentially for themselves. And actually in one camp they did the Verdi Requiem all the way with a chorus and everything. So yeah, that's where he learned to play play the violin and when he returned home after after he was released, uh, he became a music teacher in his in his home in his hometown. You so it's in my blood. It's yeah. in my blood. You mentioned the Verdi Requiem, that's the Defiant Requiem. That yes. they, I've done that. Yes it it's, is. It's you ever get a chance to see a presentation called the Defiant the Defiant Requiem, mm-hmm. go. It is it's shattering. Yeah. Absolutely shattering. Now um how do you look um, as a conductor, and you look at, at, at programming, and you look at what you want to bring, the music that's important to you, mm-hmm. balanced by what you know, what an, the particular audience might want, or what the audience should want. <laughs> and trust me, there are things you need to hear you might not know. That's part of our job. Yeah, I the, agree. You know, the, the, the difference is finding where's that line, you know? But how do you go about that? How do you, what's your philosophy on that? It's a complete um, it's a complete judgment call every time. That's you know that's the way I like to put it, and it's it's a lot about experience. There are some pieces. I mean, I've tried many many things where I've seen okay, obviously this is not going to work a second time. There are, there are other times when I said this may work a second time, maybe not for this audience, and there are other times where this is going to work all over the place, no matter where I. T- I take it. So mm-hmm. programming, uh, the way that I like to put it is I like to program maybe just 5% above what an audience and what an orchestra can handle. So give mm-hmm. them for the most part what they enjoy, mm-hmm. what I know for sure they'll enjoy, and just push the limits a little little by little, little by little. So it's not too much. It's not everything is a complete, mm-hmm. a complete uh, chaotic event for them sure. that they've mm-hmm. never heard of before. Mm-hmm. But that's... I mean, that's the fun of being a music director. That's absolutely the, the creative side. And, again, the fun of being a music director is, mm-hmm. like, I, like I, I, you know, I love spending my, my uh, weekends on YouTube trying to find new music. It's an incredible resource. That's actually how I found one of the pieces on this concert, the Bates, the Mothership. I was just sitting there um, at my desk. I'm trying to find some new music. I'm looking into composers that I know. And... The Mothership, I see by Mason Bates. What the heck is that? You know, and I, and I see the uh, the um, what's it called? The description underneath where oh the ship comes to Earth and it docks and it makes contact with musicians. I'm like, okay, I gotta hear this. Two minutes later, my wife walks walks into the room and there I am with my headphones on, just <laughs> grooving along, <laughs> grooving along. She actually looks at me. What on earth are you doing? Not on Earth, no, no. <laughs> you know, so that's that's how this that's how mm-hmm. this happens, mm-hmm. and it's it's the fun. Like I said, it's the absolute fun of going out there and uh, finding new works, and and the great thing is, all of us conductors, we know each other. I see what other people are programming. I talk to other people. Mm-hmm. What did this piece work for you? To you know, like, what do you think about this piece for this audience in this part of the country? So mm-hmm. on. What didn't work? Also. Right. So it's a it's a privilege. <laughs> So what do you listen to when you're not, uh, you know, and you're just turning on the radio or putting a CD in or whatever? What's on your iPod? Oh, gosh. iPod. I am really? a Luddite when it comes to technology. Look, look, I, 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 I have 13,000 LPs and six turntables at home. Let me, okay? I'm a Luddite. Let me consult my CD player here. Yes. <laughs> Let me see what I have on my compact disc. <laughs> 
Oh, you're killing me, man. <laughs> all right. Well, gosh. Well, at this point, all of my pieces that I listen to, I actually I turn into MP4s from from YouTube, mm-hmm. and I have them in video audio form. Gosh, what on earth do I even have in my list anymore? I have everything from film scores, which I absolutely adore. Mm-hmm. Uh, video game music. Assassin's Creed, for example. Incredible soundtrack. Share mm-hmm. is on there. Mm-hmm. Yes, Backstreet Boys is on there. I have a few Backstreet Boys songs. They're just fun. I don't care what you think. <laughs> Let me see. What else do I have on there? Um, uh, David Guetta, if you heard, he's a, a great DJ mm-hmm. who actually mm-hmm. does incredible elect, uh, electronic music. Mm-hmm. Actually, very, very thoughtful music. I, mm-hmm. I really like him a lot. Hmm. Occasional Duran Duran. Okay. Mm-hmm. Love the Beatles. Who doesn't like the Beatles, obviously? It's so funny. There's so many things on there, but when you have to think about it, I, I can't he, seem to it, point it's a, on it. It's a blank. Well, it's, I know. It's, it's, it's an eclectic list. Right. It's sure. an eclectic mm-hmm. list. There's, yeah. I, honestly, there's nothing that I won't, I won't listen to. Because mm-hmm. why on earth? You know, I, may not, sure. I may not like it, but I'll, I'll give anything a chance. Just a question for me, just because I'm a bit of a... I've always had interest in conductors and conducting and how they approach things. Does listening to say, modern music and a modern approach to it, whatever genre it is, mm-hmm. do you find that that informs how you're going to pro- perform Beethoven? Or do you, you know, have the originalist approach, you know? I'm definitely not an originalist. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, I think that's an, uh, that's an, it's an awesome idea, and it's, and it's great to have that in our uh, tool belt, mm-hmm. but... It's like a professor of mine said said one time, uh, you can't play Beethoven or Mozart the same way, or you can't hear them or think of them the same way once you've heard the Tristan chord, for example. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, or or once you've heard of Wagner, essentially, or Strauss or Stravinsky. Once you know, you can't uh, unring that that bell, mm-hmm. and it's going to inform the way you do everything else, which is fine. Mm-hmm. I think that's absolutely fine. I think there's no reason to put boundaries around anything that we perform because that's essentially what happens in academia i feel we get into this um into this route of we have to be historically informed and that's the way beethoven intended it and that's the way we Mm -hmm. have to do it well that means we're all going to be doing the exact same piece the exact same way in perpetuity who who benefits right Mm -hmm. you know of course have that in our tool belt and do that if that's what you think is is right and that's your Mm -hmm. that's your path but the more options, the better. How do you see uh, a symphony orchestra in today's world in a city, well, let's say a city like Rockford with its size, with its mm-hmm. uh, economics and that? What is the role of a symphony orchestra today? <laughs> well, I was asked this question just a few days ago. And actually, I'll tell you the exact same thing I said then. Mm-hmm. It was... So, so uh, this was election night, just a few nights ago. Obviously, everyone was all was looking left and right a bit, and I was and I was thinking to myself, here we are, a hundred people in a room, an orchestra, each of which comes from their own background, their own history, their own priorities, opinions, points of view, and yet we're able to put all of that aside and all agree on one thing. 
we love music, and it's incredibly important. Whatever side of the political spectrum you are, whatever side of anything, anything whatsoever, everyone votes for music. <laughs> that was the thought that I had. And, <clears throat> you know, orchestras have changed, have changed dramatically. I think 100 years ago, and, uh, to be in an orchestra, to play in an orchestra meant your job is to perform the great works of the past and the, and the present at the highest possible level, and that's enough. You know, like, uh, that's enough in itself. <clears throat> I think things have changed for the better in that, in that regard, in the sense that now, in addition to performing at the highest possible level, we're asking ourselves other kinds of questions. What role can this organization serve in a larger community? And whether that's Chicago, L.A., or Rockford, or Miami, or Seattle, or wherever it is, it's the same question. It's how can, how can um, we use music to do what it's supposed to be doing, which is bringing communities together in, under one vote. <laughs> yeah. How do you see the orchestra working with schools and working with yeah. uh, youth orchestras and bringing, as we all know that over the last, I don't know, you know, 15, 20, 40 years, Funding for music programs mm -hmm. has been cut. You know, the first thing you cut is the arts program. Yep. I've always said if you want a referendum passed, tell them the first thing you're going to cut is football. <laughs> it, will, it, will, it will pass. Yep. It will pass. But uh, how, do you, how do you see, or what can an orchestra like us do? How can we get out into the community that way? How would you like to see yeah. that? Given, given, if not unlimited, but enough funds yeah, yeah, to yeah. go to it. Well, no, the great thing about having a, a music director is that individual can go everywhere at that point. If they're in town, they can be incredibly well, well used. And that goes for the entire orchestra. You can have chamber ensembles, a, br a brass quintet, a wind quintet, a string quartet, and along with the music director, like I'm a pianist, for example, piano quartet. You know, there's no reason that uh, music has to stay in the concert hall. And it should go out to all kinds of communities where it's most needed. All of these ensembles could go out, perform for schools, give, give uh, talks. A music director conducts the orchestra, gives, gives a little talk about what it means to be a musician, how to, how to give back to the community, how to enjoy a concert. You know, give out free tickets, obviously, and please come to the concert. Give a little talk when they come to the hall. And all of these ensembles, there is so there are so many places in all in all of these communities that need what it is that we provide. Uh, in addition to schools, obviously, uh, senior centers, uh, homeless shelters, uh, prisons, and reform communities, people who are trying to get their lives together. These are the people. I mean, since I saw Shawshank Redemption, if anyone knows that that movie, the best movie of all time, I think, when. Uh, when Andy Dufresne puts on the Mozart aria, the entire prison just stands there like that. These are the people that need what it is we're, we're offering. And it can absolutely be done. It's not something that costs millions and millions of dollars, but with the right effort, with the right, um, you know, with the right push, I think it's absolutely doable in any community. And it's really, that's what an orchestra needs to be about. This is kind of piggybacking on that a little bit, a little, on a little bit, uh, you know, telescoping a little bit. How do you see your role mm -hmm. in the community as, as the music director? Gosh. Well, you know, one thing that you don't 
see as a guest conductor, you know, uh, guest conducting is a great thing. It's basically none of the responsibility and all of the fun. You know, you just go there, you have a great concert, you take your bow, you shake some hands, you had a great night, awesome. Which is fine. And if you make a mistake, no one can hear it. Yeah, there you go. I make a mistake, everyone hears it. You get to blame everyone else but yourself, basically. (laughs) You know? And that's fine, that's a great experience. Mm -hmm. But the difference, though, with the music director, and I learned this when, and I only learned this, when I first became a music director, actually not not too far from here in uh, Galesburg, Illinois, it was my first orchestra. Very, very different experience after the concert and before the concert. So as a, as a guest conductor, you shake hands and leave, and that's nice. As a music director, you take your last bow, and then you go to a restaurant. Octane, for example, or, or Garrett's, or anywhere like that, or the brewery, mm-hmm. you know, with some members of the orchestra. And all of a sudden, people start to walk up to you. People that went to the concert. That's, I mean, that's what happened to me in Galesburg, for example. People, just random people, I... I didn't know, came up to me afterwards uh, in the brewery, wherever I was, and, you know, I loved the Rachmaninoff. Absolutely loved it. I'd never, I'd never heard it before. It was an incredible piece. Can we do some more of that? You know? It's so much more rewarding. It's so much more rewarding like that when you can actually feel like the individuals in that community know you. Mm-hmm. They don't just know you as that guy who waves his arms around. They know it's Vlad. He's part of our community. He's part of... You know, this is what this is what uh, he contributes to our community. It's, and they're free to talk to you about it. Mm-hmm. I think that's that's the kind of relationship that is long lasting. Mm-hmm. That's the kind that uh, when people are are free to talk to you, they give you ideas. They're you know why why stop at only one one mind of ideas? There's a group. There's an entire community here that knows itself and what it needs and what could could be done. Mm-hmm. That's, it's an incredible resource, and that's the, that's the kind of ideal relationship I'd like to see. And as a music director in an orchestra like Rockford, as opposed to, say, Chicago, where you have you mm-hmm. know, an office staff of, of God knows, yeah, you yeah. know, a hundred, you, you wouldn't believe an army. the amount. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you obviously are going to have to be more involved in this, the nuts and bolts of fundraising, mm-hmm. sure. of getting people in, of grant writing and that kind of stuff. Yeah. And is I don't know if I, if I want to say if that's something you enjoy, because I'm sure that, <laughs> that part of it is not always enjoyable. I mean, I've been around the office staff here enough to know that it's not always <laughs> enjoyable, but it's something that you do have to do and do well. You know, it's, uh, let me put it this way. It starts off as something that you don't enjoy. It always starts off like that. When you first learn to fundraise, when you first start to fundraise, it's like climbing a mountain. You look up at the entire thing and you go, how on earth am I ever going to figure this out? Little by little, little by little, just like with conducting. At first, you look like an idiot. But little by little, you, you figure it out. You, you start to understand what it takes. You start to understand what it's about. And the better and better you get at it, the more you realize it's, it's actually a privilege. It's a privilege to be able to advocate for this. Because I think everyone who doesn't do uh, music is just nuts. <laughs> Honestly, I don't understand how people get through their days without wanting to do music, to perform music, to listen to music all the time. It's, I think it's, in my opinion, it's the greatest job in the world. And to, and to have the ability and the know-how and the team around you, the dedicated team to fight for that and to advocate for it, that's awesome. <laughs> When you look at uh, you look at a season and you say you've got this many concerts, 
we, 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 I think we kind of asked you this in, in the meeting earlier in the week, but what are the kind of things you said, I'd really like to do this, and I haven't yet? What would be some of those pieces? Two of the pieces on this very concert, the film scores, by Hans Zimmer and by James Horner. I have wanted to conduct these pieces since before I knew I wanted to conduct. <laughs> Gladiator came out in 2000, Troy in 2004. Since then, I started conducting basically for real, 2009, 2010. Since those two scores came out, I was conducting before I, I even knew it. Mm -hmm. you know, actually, interesting story along those lines. I recently discovered a picture from my parents. They gave me a picture of myself when I was three years old. Again, headphones, because I always wear headphones. Right. But these were about four times the size of my head. <laughs> Humongous. And there I was, this little, this little blob of a creature. Um, I, ha I was playing a vinyl record, because that's what we had at the time. <laughs> a little shout out there. Mm. <laughs> and it was Linda Ronstadt, Just One Look. That was, apparently that was my first crush, Linda Ronstadt. <laughs> And there I was, according to them, just <laughs> making these gestures, making these gestures. And so that, I think that's my ultimate proof that conducting mm -hmm. was in my blood before I even knew it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That was, I mean, uh, conducting was always a gestural thing for me. It's, I can't, even to this day, I can't sit through a concert. I, it's, I'm, a, I'm a terrible person to go to a concert with. My wife always has, stop moving, stop moving, stop conducting, stop it. You know? <laughs> well, the people behind me think she's right, so. <laughs> you know? And I've, I've learned she's just right. It doesn't matter. I've been married long enough to know that. So, yeah, there are, there are a number of pieces that I'd love to conduct. Mm -hmm. These two, like I said, have been on my list for some time. Mm -hmm. it's, I finally get to do them. So it's as it'll be as much of a treat for me as it is for the audience in this case. But, gosh, there are the Mahler symphonies, the Anna Klein, an incredible new composer. I've fallen in love with her works. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. uh, the Bruckner symphonies, so many I haven't gotten to. Mm -hmm. I've done the Beethovens, a lot of the Mozarts. I've done a a lot of the standard rep, but there's, sure. again, so much of that standard rep I haven't done. The Dvorak symphonies, are still a number of them I'd like to do. Uh, Strauss and Wagner and Stravinsky and mm -hmm. Barber and the list goes, the list goes on. <laughs> uh, there is quite a, there's a lot, of, a lot of things I'd like to do yeah. that I uh, haven't had the chance yet. While we're talking about Troy and Gladiator, let's mm -hmm. spend a little time talking about the program. Yeah. So we start with Mason Bates' Mothership, which you kind of alluded to earlier. Mason Bates, yeah. That one is, uh, that one is like I said, it's basically an alien ship coming down to Earth and making contact with human life. That's all I'm going to say about it. I don't want to spoil it because it is, it's basically a, a classical form, an ABA form, mixed with jazz and electronic techno. We actually have our uh, principal percussionist is playing the laptop. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're going to hear all kinds of club-like sounds. It's an incredible piece, really, really fun. I think it really, it really does integrate the electronics and the orchestra. Oh, yeah. In a really, I mean, we've done occasionally a piece like that, or I've heard a piece like that where, you know, one of them sounds like they were just kind of thrown in on the other. Yeah. You know, the electronics were thrown in on the orchestra, or the orchestra was thrown in on the electronics. Pretty much. <laughs> this one is, is, I find, much more integrated. I mean, the electronics really become a section no, no. in the orchestra. Yeah, I mean, Mason Bates is known as the composer that introduced 
electronics into mm-hmm. into uh, classical music, mm-hmm. and he does that. I don't think anyone does it better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and then we have a percussion. So that brings concerto. us to uh, the percussion concerto called the Soaring Souls. Now this piece. So initially, when I had contacted Paul Dooley, uh, this is the com- the composer, about uh, a new piece. I wanted to do a new piece. And uh, he had written another percussion concerto in 2018, which I really, really liked. And I said, hey, can we perform that one for RSO? I think it'd be a great piece. He said, absolutely, if you'd like to, no problem. But here's another idea. What if I write a brand new piece for the RSO as a world premiere? And I uh, specifically have this one, this one percussionist in mind for it, uh, Taniel Gonzalez. Yippee. <laughs> <laughs> I said, what, what a great idea. Absolutely. Let's do a piece specifically for this audience, for, for this uh, search, for this mm-hmm. you know, uh, audition, I guess. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so you will be the very first audience in the world to, to hear The Soaring Souls. And it's, it's an absolute treat. It's a, it's a two-movement piece. It's actually based on the exact same, same theme, the same idea as the, as the Tchaikovsky. The same story, essentially, which is the story of Francesca da Rimini. And uh, gosh, it is. We like to use this word "accessible." We mm. just talked about it. Yeah. Mm. That is a sen- That's an okay word to use, I suppose. It's it's it speaks the you know like what we mean by accessible is it speaks the same musical language, which is tonality, that you would hear in uh, Duran Duran, for example. It's that same musical um, uh, like they use harmonies, this, um, melodies. It it it'll make sense, in other words. Yeah. And that brings us right into the film scores, mm-hmm. which are, yeah, so the theme of this concert is called From, From the Mothership to the Underworld. Obviously, we're starting in outer space. We move through the Soaring Souls down to the film scores, which is, which is uh, war music. There, it's two uh, uh, battle scenes. One is from ancient Rome, and the other is from ancient Troy, obviously. But... Uh, Gosh, the, the, the Troy one specifically, you just heard this last night. We did mm-hmm. it for the first time. We have an army of percussionists. <laughs> I think I counted 20. Yeah. Not mm-hmm. players, uh, instruments. Yeah. Like two, two uh, timpanists, a bass drum, snare drum, field drum, all kinds of toys. Every, every um, uh, keyboard instrument there, marimba, vibraphone, xylophone, glockenspiel, everything you can possibly imagine. And eight horns. Eight horns mm-hmm. we will have on Saturday. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So yeah, just listen like that. You'll be fine. Eight horns, four trumpets, four trombones, mm-hmm. big orchestra. That'll just blow you back. No worries. And then inter- intermission, so and you then can catch your breath, so we can all, so we can all catch our breath. Hopefully, come back. Yes, please. You know, and that, uh, and that leads us from the from the under, uh, no, from from the battle scenes. Obviously, the next step is going to be the underworld. And we go all the way to the underworld with uh, Tchaikovsky, Francesca da Rimini, which is a uh, true story mixed with a little bit of fiction at this point. It is, uh, it's actually based on a, a real-life woman who was uh, Francesca da Ravinia, or Ravenna, originally. She was the daughter of a nobleman who, um, who wanted to make peace with another noble family, uh, the Malatesta family, and they were from Rimini, Italy. And as they often did back then when they wanted to make peace, what's the best way to make peace is bring your children together. 
And uh, F- uh, Francesca was a be- beautiful woman, renowned, one of those uh, Helen of Troy types. And uh, Giovanni Malatesta from Rimini, let's just say he wasn't James Bond. <laughs> Brave man, great reputation, but not exactly a charming individual. Not at her level, let's say. His younger brother, on the other hand, Paolo, the Brad Pitt of his day. (laughs) He was also married, but he and Francesca began an affair. And when uh, his brother Giovanni found out, he had them both killed. So that was was the the drama of their day, Mm -hmm. basically. That was the Oscar slap of their day. And uh, a few... uh, few Generations later, uh, Dante, when he's writing Inferno, uh, he knew this story very well, and he implanted Francesca and Paolo into the second circle of hell. And they're in an an eternal wind, just flying around and around for eternity. And that's where Tchaikovsky takes takes Mm -hmm. over. He he read, obviously, Inferno, and he said this would make an incredible piece. Now it's interesting. I've always wanted to do Francesca Durman. And, you know, he makes it sound. So, you know, I feel like Francesca Durman <laughs> over here. You know, and he's got the you know the pronunciation. But you have to play it with a banjo when you say that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> anyway, um, <laughs> <laughs> was coming out. Uh, it's a piece I've always wanted to play. I've never had chance. I've never had a chance to play it. But it had it. it and I'm no musicologist or, or expert in this, but mm-hmm. to me, it sounds like an outlier in Tchaikovsky's output because it is far more chromatic yes. than pretty much anything I have ever played That's by him. That's not accidental. That's not accidental. So when this was written, this was in 1876, um, his music up until that point, he was actually the, he was the youngest uh, professor at the Moscow Conservatory at that point. So he was, he was incredibly talented and he wrote a treatise on uh, how to how to compose harmonies so he was he knew what he was doing incredibly well mm-hmm. but his music up until that point the first symphony the second symphony was the third written yet I think even the third was written by that mm-hmm. point if I'm not if I'm not mistaken much more um, I don't want to say conservative necessarily but much much less um, adventurous in terms of the types of harmonies being used and like you said the type of chromatic lines mm-hmm. being used mm-hmm. so essentially chromatic basically means da, 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 half steps half steps going up going down you know well in 1876 he went to the very very first um, ring cycle of Wagner's ring ring cycle at Bayreuth the very first one and he was and he re- reviewed it so he was there for the entire thing, all 159 hours of it. And it was an okay review. He wasn't crazy about all of it, but there were some things that he absolutely took away from it. Mm-hmm. The idea of eight horns didn't just pop out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. That was from Wagner. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's why the brass is, and he, as very you know, pro- is very heavily prominent. prominent yeah. Heavily prominent. Mm-hmm. It's like a machine gun back there a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's incredibly effective. Mm-hmm. It's, I mean, there's no... If you're going to depict what it's like in hell, you got to put the brass in there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I'm sorry. you got to put the brass Conductors in there. have been looking at me like that for years. That's mm-hmm. the way it goes. Of course. That's the way it goes. You want to put someone through hell, you bring you the trombones and tubas. You know? Yeah, I, mean, I, I love the flutes, but a, a flute is not what it sounds like in, in, in hell. No. <laughs> no. You know? 
But mm-hmm. interestingly enough, and and this is what he does with the piece, he starts. Uh, it's it's very much a, a narrative structure. Let's say he 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 starts off with opening the gates of hell, and they, and you can actually hear the various sections. The uh, uh, Dante and his uh, his host essentially start walking through hell. You can start to hear them walking. You start to hear the souls on the sides clamoring for them in agony. And when they get to the whirlwind, where Francesca is, man, oh man, do you hear the whirlwind? Yeah. <laughs> you will, trust me, you won't have any trouble finding that one in the piece. But he takes you even further. He goes inside the whirlwind, and he gives you, it wouldn't be Tchaikovsky without a ballet. True. He gives you a, a little intermittent ballet between Paolo and, and Francesca, their own little love duet. And he takes you out again, back into the whirlwind. And then... He gives you an earthquake in hell to end the peace. And the ground opens up and it swallows them whole. And that's another thing about this is I don't know if Tchaikovsky ever wrote another piece that was so programmatic. I mean, I so, so deliberately, I mean, almost yeah. Straussian. In Ro- it's, yeah. it's, I mean, this is this and this you is can, this. You can read things into other pieces like uh, Romeo and Juliet, obviously. Yeah. There are some things right. you can read. Mm-hmm. But... But this is just almost, I don't, yeah. the word is, I don't, it's, I don't want to say blatant, but it's just so obvious. It's, it's so yeah. obvious, but it's incredibly well done. Mm-hmm. It's not cheap. It's right. not easy and cheap at all. Mm-hmm. It's just an incredibly, it's personally, it's, I think it's my favorite work of his. I think it's, and that's it, saying something. <laughs> I think it's interesting that uh, as the, the ballet ends and we're going back into the whirlwind, I yep. love it that the Russians come in to take us there because you hear the horns going, we use it more than once, you know? Yes, he does. Then we have we have descended into the netherworld, but we can't leave people in the netherworld. No, we got to bring them back. We bring them back to Earth. With the Inescu. Yeah, so the Inescu, George Inescu, George Inescu, you know, the Romanian pronunciation. Where to begin? I always like to tell this one anecdote about Inescu. It gives you a sense of the kind of musical mind that we're working with. He was asked by a student of his one time, if we lost all of Beethoven's works, all of them printed, we have no more copies, we have no, no more Beethoven's works, can you reproduce them? Could you reproduce them for us? And, and he answers, that's a silly question. Of course I couldn't reproduce them for you. Just the symphonies, the string quartets, the string trios, the piano sonatas, the, the violin sonatas, and, and Fidelio. His, his one opera. So that's, that's the kind of musical mind we're talking about here. It's, it's uh, the Mozart level, mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. he heard a piece once, he could write it down. Yeah. You know, if, and he wasn't kidding. He could write no. down mm-hmm. Beethoven symphonies, string quartets, string trios, piano sonatas, violin sonatas, and opera. Well, there's the famous story about Mozart. Yeah. The first time he heard uh, the uh, Messiah. He, the Messiah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He got home and wrote out all the parts, correcting the mistakes mm-hmm. that he knew the musicians had made. And the Allegri, the uh, Miserere, mm-hmm. was another one. Mm-hmm. And he was a child at that point. <laughs> he was, yeah, he was writing at three years old already, five years old, first first symphony, ten years old, first opera. You know, so that's that's Inescu. That's mm-hmm. that's the kind of mind Inescu was. I mean, mm-hmm. he was a prodigy. He uh, he. Graduated conservatory, full conservatory, before he was twenty, and uh, these and among the first works that that he wrote were the Romanian Rhapsodies. Mm-hmm. There were uh, two in the set, and um, 
gosh. It's they're based on folk on folk songs, and I've actually heard the folk songs. Like I was in a restaurant recently in Romania, and one of the folk songs from the, from the Rhapsody starts playing on the radio. They put a, a like a folk channel. I actually stopped with them, you know. <laughs> but it's it's really interesting to hear the folk songs on which these things are based, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because he took it to the next level and then some. You know, so he is uh, at that age to be writing. He. You know, so 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 the way a rhapsody works essentially, rhapsodies are are two part pieces. One is slow, called called the lasan, and then comes the fast part, the frischka. All all rhapsodies work like that. Like if you've heard the list Hungarian rhapsodies, that's the slow part, and that's the fast part. All rhapsodies work like that. Well, this one's the same. But what he does is he makes absolute fun of the melodrama of the slow part. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's because it, it's actually supposed to sound incredibly not agonistic. You know, I don't want to say it's uh, 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 depressive or anything, but no. heavy, heavy. It's very heavy. It's maybe a little bit melodramatic, but you're in a ca- very pleasant way. You're almost caricatures violinist yeah. doing, you know, hard on the sleeve and you know, emoting you know, and exactly. I mean, you know, one thing I said to the orchestra at this point is is what. Is what Gustavo Dudamel said said to the LA Phil with another piece. Play it like you're begging for money. <laughs> that's that's how it's supposed to sound. Oh, oh. And being musicians, we're good at that. Yeah. And he actually and he interchanges from like from bar to bar. He'll start one bar off incredibly dramatically, and then the very next bar, it's a joke. It's an absolute mm-hmm. joke. And the and the fast part, the fish guy, it's yeah. I won't even say another word about that. You have to hear it. Yeah. Yes, it. It's the most fun I've ever had on a podium in my life. And I was very, very fortunate. The first time I did this piece in 2015, I did it with a Romanian orchestra. But it, it was the Romanian orchestra whose ancestor orchestra 100 years ago premiered it. So they passed on all of the little secrets that aren't written in a score straight from Enescu and straight from the people that work with Enescu. So... Um, I didn't get it from the horse's mouth, obviously, but within shouting distance of the horse, let's say, it's it'll be awesome. Yeah, and it is it is uh, interesting to, especially the, the first part, because you know once you get into the the frishka, yeah. it's just like mm-hmm. you know drop the reins, kick the horse, and and, and go to town. Try to <laughs> hang on till we get to the barn, but the opening part, yeah, and all the and just you know watching my cues and that all the things you're doing. With timing and that, that just mm-hmm. they're not there. Yeah, they're not there. They're not there. But if you go to a, a Romanian party, everyone who dances those dances mm-hmm. knows exactly when to do it. That's the yeah. other interesting thing is so much of these things <clears throat> being based on dances, knowing the dance step. Yeah, which I I try yeah, to yeah. you know tell my students when we're working on things like the gavotte and the, oh, yeah. the uh, gige and uh, you know aleman. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're all mm-hmm. dances. They're all dance. All steps. you need to do is watch someone dance them to know what what you're doing here, mm-hmm. or here or here or anywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Any questions yeah. from the audience? We've got a few minutes left here before we we wrap things up. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Um, being a devotee of the Chicago Symphony as well as Rockford Symphony, I have this fantasy about conducting. <laughs> we all move. Music yeah. moves. But I, I'm, I'm curious. What's it like to be a conductor of this kind of orchestra as opposed to that kind of orchestra? Okay, so I, you know, 
I, I was in band in, in high school and I was terrible. Uh, and I see Sir George Schulte and I see Ricardo Muti and they're playing in front of the probably, arguably, one of the finest orchestras, three finest orchestras in the world. Mm-hmm. I could do that. <laughs> just get them started. These guys know the score. They know what they do. I don't, but they do. What's it like to go from a real orchestra to a bunch of kids? Oh, yeah. Oh, gosh. Because these kids need a different kind of, they're, a different, they're a totally different level. It's a totally different mission. Your, your aims are dead. Comple- yeah, well, as you can imagine, completely different way of conducting. And I learned that essentially because I've, I've had the chance throughout my career to work with basically every level of orchestra, from, from beginner orchestra to youth orchestra to um, college-level orchestra, community, and all the way to the London Symphony. What's the hardest one? What's the hardest one to conduct? That's, a, that's an interesting question. The hardest, well, it's it, it's it's like you said, it's it's a different kind of hard. It's a different kind of difficulty. The hardest thing um, when you're stepping in front of the Chicago Symphony, London Symphony, L.A. Phil, and you know what, Rockford Symphony is very close up up to them. So I don't I don't consider this a different level orchestra. We like to think so. Oh yeah. <laughs> you know, the difference. Uh, so what the the kind of conducting that you need to show with that kind of orchestra has very little to do with technique, if that makes any sense, which is they've played this repertoire hundreds of times at this point. They know these pieces better than you do as a young conductor. If I'm 80 years old, it's a different story probably. But as a young conductor, they, they know these pieces infinitely better than, than you do. They don't need to be reminded this is one, this is two, this is three, this is four constantly. They, they're going to come in regardless what you do. You could sit there and not conduct, and they'll still come in. <laughs> Honestly, with exceptions, obviously, some repertoire yes. does need conducting, even at that, even at that level, just because you, can, you know, a tuba player can't hear the concertmaster the way that I can, yeah. and so on. But what's really fun about that level of orchestra is, since you don't have to constantly show everything at all times, you're free to show interesting things. You're free to show things that aren't in the score. You're, and they'll adapt to this. You do this, and they'll do something as a, as a result of it. So it's it's an, it's like having an incredible instrument at your at your disposal to just do the most wild and musically complex things you can imagine. Yeah, I've seen Chicago conductors mm-hmm. stop moving. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. And, they and they'll keep on playing, and they're perfectly fine. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, but. That doesn't mean that uh, Schulte, for example, or any conductor, or, or now um, Muti, uh, it doesn't mean they don't say things that make a big difference to the sound. And that's what I think a conductor can do at that, at that level. Because at the end of the day, no matter how um, incredible the players, they don't study the full score. Some of them look at the full score, just right. so they have a sense of what's... But they don't, mm-hmm. they don't have time. They're playing. They have to study their own parts. No matter how incredible they are, they don't study the full score the way a conductor does. So at the end of the day, a conductor is always going to have the full picture of what's of what's going on, no matter what orchestra you're you're dealing with. And that's that's what I think. That's the kind of conducting you have to bring to them. Completely different animal with a youth orchestra. Obviously, they need you there for every bar, every cue. They need to make sure you know. 
they haven't studied their parts the way the Chicago <laughs> Symphony has. I can I can guarantee that. And they need, you know, they need everything from encouragement to help figuring out the notes to who the heck is Brahms. <laughs> you know, they need they need music history, music theory. You're you're building an orchestra there. So that's that's they um they they trust you a lot more obviously than the Chicago players would for example. They depend on you a lot more and that makes it more 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 difficult in that sense because you have to build the entire um atmosphere and the entire character of the group as a as a whole. But you know what? It's it's awesome to be in both. <laughs> it's an interesting interesting question also from a player's standpoint in you know, because in Rockford here, we have players who substitute in the Chicago Symphony. Mm-hmm. We have players who substitute in Milwaukee who are of that level. Uh, we have players who could definitely be in an orchestra like Rockford, but just couldn't put an audition together at the right time and the right place. Our bass trombone player, now Mike Zielinski, is awesome. Always has been. But in an orchestra, just looking for an orchestra like Rockford to Chicago... The main difference, as I see it, is we don't play together as much. And we also have more substitutes in our orchestra. I mean, Chicago has substitutes. One of my best friends, Link Smelzer, who conducts the youth orchestra, is uh, plays with the Chicago Symphony regularly. And he says it's the easiest job, that it's easier to play in the Rockford Symphony, or in the Chicago Symphony, than in, say, an orchestra like Rockford, or if you go down the line, because they play together so much, you know exactly what they're going to do. Now, you make a mistake, usually you've got someone glaring at you, but that's a different matter. But it's, it's easier because you have the same people with you, you know what they're going to do. You know, At that point, they played the standard literature enough where they're not looking to the conductor for, yeah. unless he does something wildly different, yeah. which happens. Sure. They're looking for... They're looking for overall arc. They're looking for what do you want emphasized? What uh, you know? I want more violin here. I want more bottom end here. Whatever that particular conductor's vision is. Could I ask you actually? I've always been curious. What does it mean uh, for players to to be used to playing together? Like, what does it mean when uh, you just said they know what they're about to do versus orchestras that don't play together? Well, I'll just talk about personally. You know, Rick Seibold and I, uh, our first trombone, we sat next to each other for 20, 27 years now, I think. And we, we know each other's pitch tendencies. We know how we're going to breathe and come in together. And there'll be times, like I remember one time we came as a rehearsal, and I just fracked the living daylights out of this note. And and afterwards, the next rest, Rick said, I'm sorry, I knocked that right out of you, because he came in a little sharp. Well, I'm hearing a pitch here, and all of a sudden, the guy next to me isn't there, and so I adjust so quick that sometimes I'll just miss, because you get that kind of relationship. Um, you know, you know how the guy, you know where his tendencies, how he wants to crescendo. You know how, you know, what kind of attack he's probably going to do with this symbol. And that just comes from sitting next to a person long enough. Now, you take the Chicago Symphony, like the classic trombone section with Jay Friedman, who at 82 is still playing unbelievably well. <laughs> but you got, you got Jay Friedman, Ed Kleinhammer, uh, oh, am I, anyway, these guys sat together for 40 years. I mean, they didn't. I mean, they didn't even have to. 
they didn't need a conductor. You know, they just boom. And an orchestra, a lot of times, the standard repertoire, an orchestra can play it without a conductor. It, the interpretation might be a little, you know, be, but they'll be together. And what an orchestra wants is consistency from a conductor. You know, it, it's nice, you know, if you get it really, you know, one, two, three, four all the time. But really, a lot of conductors, you know, they're, you know, they're doing shape. You know, they, they, they depend on the, on the orchestra to know where to do things. But if, an or, but if the conductor is consistent, we'll get used to whatever you do. You know, we learn what this gesture means or whatever it is in your timing. What drives us crazy is a conductor that is inconsistent. Yeah. And that isn't necessarily, I'm not saying they can't be inventive and, you know, and push here on one rehearsal and, and not. Yeah. But in the, in the gestures, you know, then we don't, that's when an orchestra does this. <laughs> You know, and just keeps the foot tapping, because <laughs> you know, like, that, that's what throws down all our conductors, yourself included, very consistent. Now, admittedly, some we took a rehearsal or two to figure that out. There have been a couple where our first rehearsal was a little, it was like, uh, by the second. My apologies. <laughs> by, by, the, by the second, third rehearsal, by the second, third rehearsal, it's like, you know, because we learned. We knew what each thing meant. Right. And by the concert, you know, all of them. We've been, you know, tight with all of them. Uh, it, but that's what you're looking for as a player, because I've, I've tried conducting. Uh, no. <laughs> for, for one thing, I can only read one staff of music at a time. I'm completely monostavic. Uh, but uh, that's, what we're, that's what you're looking for. And having, and having an orchestra where you're together all the time, is, you know, that's the main thing that... I think I'm going to shut up in just a minute because we're going over time, I, pre I realize. That's what this orchestra needs, I think, more than anything to grow, is to play more. Is to play together more, whether it's more rehearsals, more concerts. That's what an orchestra at the level of Rockford needs to make the next jump. Because we're a pretty good orchestra. We are, like, you guys have heard ad nauseum. I've been in it 43 years. And when I joined, it was basically a, commu a glorified community orchestra, a good one. But as years now, it's a very good orchestra, and uh, we all like to play, a, play more because we want to play more. Uh, also, it helps make a living. But beyond that, it's just more—it's just so much more satisfying to be able to play at that level all the time. We are about done. I'm, I've gone over. Any last comments? You know, it's been an incredible week. You have an incredible orchestra, great community, great group of people here, and you have a lot to be proud of. It's been a, it's been a pleasure. I've been sitting here thinking all, all this week. There's something about his voice that that it this reminds me of CNN. something. CNN. And I know, and I, and I thought I finally came to me, Carl Sagan. I want to hear him say billions and billions of star stuff. <laughs> you know, but. <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, not so much. Yeah, okay. Thank, thank you. Okay. Well, this is our our last concert in this one year thing. So, as usual, come to the concert and br bring three friends. Okay.